Plutarch's Lives. That is the text we are doing on this week's BAMF. Plutarch was born in 45 AD, and he was a Platonist philosopher, vegetarian, and he wrote Parallel Lives, or Plutarch's Lives, about a bunch of Romans and Greeks, and we're going to focus on what he wrote about Alexander. Buckle up. It must be borne in mind that my design is not to write histories, but lives. As portrait painters are more exact in the lines and features of the face in which the character is seen than in the other parts of the body, so I must be allowed to give any more particular attention to the marks and indications of the souls of men. It is agreed on by all hands that on the father's side, Alexander descended from Hercules by Carenus, and from Iacus by Neoptolemus on the mother's side. His father, Philip, being in Samothrace when he was quite young, fell in love there with Olympias, in company with whom he was initiated in the religious ceremonies of the country. And her father and mother, being both dead, soon after, with the consent of her brother Arimbus, he married her. I'm a number one. All right, you, you, you tell me what you know. About, about Alexander? Alexander? Yeah. Well, I mean, he became a king at a young age because his father died when Alexander was really young. Uh, he wasn't uh, uh, the first, like, it wasn't easy for him to become the king. He had to fight off some people to do that. Um, but it, it came as a result, actually, of him and his father making up because I believe at a younger age, he and his mother had to flee Macedonia because King Philip had enough of his, you know, um, Alexander's mom divorced her and had another um, another wife. They left. Alexander came and made up. Um, at one point during that time, he got into it with his dad uh, at the wedding reception. But the disorders of his family, chiefly caused by his new marriages and attachments, the troubles that began in the women's chambers spreading, so to say, to the whole kingdom raised various complaints and differences between them, which the violence of Olympias, a woman of a jealous and implacable temper, made wider by exasperating Alexander against his father. Among the rest, this accident contributed most to their falling out. At the wedding of Cleopatra, whom Philip fell in love with and married, she being much too young for him, our uncle Atalus, in his drink, desired the Macedonians would implore the gods to give them a lawful successor to the kingdom by his niece. This so irritated Alexander that, throwing one of the cups at his head, You villain, said he, what, am I then a bastard? Then Philip, taking Atalus's part, rose up and would have run his son through. But by good fortune for them both, either his overhasty rage or the wine he had drunk made his foot slip so that he fell down on the floor, at which Alexander reproachfully insulted over him. See there, said he, the man who makes preparations to pass out of Europe into Asia, overturned in passing from one seat to another. 
After this debauch, he and his mother Olympias withdrew from Philip's company, and when he had placed her in Epirus, he himself retired into Illyria. So Philip, a king of kind of like the Greek state that wasn't really the cool kids. What they said it was the out, um, the outlands or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So and they were like farmers and just a bunch of you know an outlier towns, but they had incredible discipline and uh, they went and, and whooped some other of the city states asses and including Thebes and Athens. And, and so Philip was a badass in that area. And they talk about how Philip had a lot of modern weapons as uh, different types of catapults and shields and stuff like that. Yeah. And so he was kind of the pioneer, which in historic terms, Alexander takes the credit for, right? Yep. No, correct there. Um, from, I guess, my understanding. And then Mind you, this guy's in his 20s. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's ridiculous. But there is a clear indication that Philip, his father, had kind of primed the pump. Well, you're right. But one of the things I noticed in, in this, this reading the story of Alexander the Great versus reading... Um, back, um, de- you know, Denikis and those, there's no mention, at least that I found of the Apogee, that Greek school where they start them at an age of like eight and, and their formative years are formed or, you know, are lived with other um, adult males in that pseudo military training school up to the age of like 29 or 30. And that's why they became so disciplined and great. Even for their small numbers, they could take on larger, you know, cultures and, I don't remember reading anything about this. I was wondering, he went and studied with uh, Aristotle right. versus going to the traditional apogee well, school with the rest of the boys. But if you think that the army that Philip created was a bunch of very, very tough dudes, and it wasn't essentially apogee military training, but these guys had dirt under their fingernails, like in a big way, right? So they were the tough guys. And then he said, hey, Let's go do some damage. So Philip brings everybody around and starts kicking everybody's butt. And then they're like, hey, we're a pretty tough group of folks. And then, like you say, they started beating up the other parts of Greek and then or Greece. And then Greece looked at them as a formidable force. And uh, that's where that's the pivot where when Alexander was a young man, they saw him with the horse. Did you ever hear about the horse story? He tamed that horse yeah. when he was just a 12-year-old. Yeah, something. so it was symbolic, right? So his dad was with his buddies, and they were all trying to tame this horse, and then they are like, yeah, this, this horse Brought the horse Bucephalus work. to Philip, offering to sell him for 13 talents. But when they went into the field to try him, they found him so very vicious and unmanageable that he reared up when they endeavored to mount him and would not so much as endure the voice of any of Philip's attendants, upon which, as they were leading him away as wholly useless and untractable, Alexander, who stood by, said, What an excellent horse do they lose for want of address and boldness to manage him. Philip at first took no notice of what he said, but when he heard him repeat the same thing several times and saw he was much vexed to see the horse sent away. Do you reproach, said he to him, those who are older than yourself as if you knew more and were better able to manage him than they? I could manage this horse, replied he, better than others do. 
And if you do not, said Philip, what will you forfeit for your rashness? I will pay, answered Alexander, the whole price of the horse. At this the whole company fell a-laughing, and as soon as the wager was settled amongst them, he immediately ran to the horse, and taking hold of the bridle, turned him directly towards the sun, having, it seems, observed that he was disturbed at and afraid of the motion of his own shadow. Then letting him go forward a little, still keeping the reins in his hand, and stroking him gently when he found him begin to grow eager and fiery, he let fall his upper garment softly, and with one nimble leap securely mounted him, and when he was seated by little and little, drew in the bridle and curbed him without either striking or spurring him. Presently, when he found him free from all rebelliousness, and only impatient for the course, he let him go at full speed, inciting him now with a commanding voice, and urging him also with his heel. Philip and his friends looked on at first in silence and anxiety for the result, till seeing him turn at the end of his career and come back rejoicing and triumphing for what he had performed, they all burst out into acclamations of applause, and his father, shedding tears, it is said, for joy, kissed him as he came down from his horse, and in his transport said, O oh, my son, look thee out a kingdom equal to and worthy of thyself. For Macedonia is too little for thee. He's like the son of Jupiter. Like he always had this. Thought he he was, thought he was like Achilles, right? He thought he was like a demigod. You th there's like um, not rumors, but lore that says that Zeus came down. Oh yeah, and, there's the uh, whole birth in, scene. Impregnated with a lightning Alexander's bolt. Mom. Yep, Olympias. One story. This is a different video where. Zeus used to like to come down and take the, the form of animals to seduce women. Yep, yep. Right before the consummation of their marriage, she dreamed that a thunderbolt fell upon her body, which kindled a great fire, whose divided flames dispersed themselves all about, and then were extinguished. And Philip, some time after he was married, dreamt that he sealed up his wife's body with a seal, whose impression, as he fancied, was the figure of a lion. Some of the diviners interpreted this as a warning to Philip to look narrowly to his wife, but Aristander of Telmesis, considering how unusual it was to seal up anything that was empty, assured him the meaning of his dream was that the queen was with child of a boy who would one day prove as stout and courageous as a lion. Once, moreover, a serpent was found lying by Olympias as she slept, which, more than anything else, it is said, abated Philip's passion for her, and whether he feared her as an enchantress, or thought she had commerce with some god, and so looked on himself as excluded, he was ever after less fond of her conversation. What's interesting is that part of Olympias, his mother, would tell him, you are a god. Yeah. And his confidence was ridiculous. Yep. And so he probably thought he was untouchable. It's like a it's like a big time college athlete that's going pro. Those guys their whole life have been telling them that you're the, you know, no one's ever told them no. And no one's ever told them that they're less than ever. And they come into, you know, some people come into some adverse conditions or situations is a better way to put it. And they don't react real well. You know, or they get some criticism. And yeah. They're like, hmm, what's yeah. this? And then he goes and um, just whacks them because they criticize they them. Do stupid stuff. Yeah, they yeah. can't take that because they've been told their whole life. And so 
And that's where you wonder, is the fuel just pure arrogance? Yeah. Right. It did he walk into those battles so arrogant, but yet he because he was untouchable, it just fed it. It just fed that arrogance to the point where he believed he could do anything. But at the same time, different than other types of conquerors, is he would give the land to everybody back after he did it. Even the king of India, that was interesting as well. As soon as he beat India in the battle with all the elephants and everything, mm-hmm. he gave the king more than he had before. He was like, the king was like, okay, you win. Yeah, and he's was, like, oh yeah, here you go. Here's all your stuff back. Plus I'll give you more. That was super interesting. Yeah. Just the whole mindset of what, it was the experience versus the, you know, the, yeah, all the, the, glory. the things. However, having taken his chariot and his bow, he returned from pursuing him and found his own men busy in pillaging the barbarians' camp, which, though to disburden themselves, they had left most of their baggage at Damascus, was exceedingly rich. But Darius's tent, which was full of splendid furniture and quantities of gold and silver, they reserved for Alexander himself, who, after he had put off his arms, went to bathe himself, saying, Let us now cleanse ourselves from the toils of war in the bath of Darius. Not so, replied one of his followers, but in Alexander's rather, for the property of the conquered is and should be called the conqueror's. Here, when he beheld the bathing vessels, the water-pots, the pans, and the ointment boxes, all of gold, curiously wrought, and smelt the fragrant odours with which the whole place was exquisitely perfumed, and from thence passed into a pavilion of great size and height, where the couches and tables and preparations for an entertainment were perfectly magnificent, he turned to those about him and said, This, it seems, is royalty. But as he was going to supper, word was brought him that Darius's mother and wife and two unmarried daughters, being taken among the rest of the prisoners, upon the sight of his chariot and bow, were all in mourning and sorrow, imagining him to be dead. After a little pause, more livelily affected with their affliction than with his own success, he sent Leonatus to them to let them know Darius was not dead, and that they need not fear any harm from Alexander, who made war upon him only for dominion. They should themselves be provided with everything they had been used to receive from Darius. This kind message could not but be very welcome to the captive ladies, especially being made good by actions no less humane and generous, for he gave them leave to bury whom they pleased of the Persians, and to make use for this purpose of what garments and furniture they thought fit out of the booty. He diminished nothing of their equipage, or of their attentions and respect formerly paid them, and allowed larger pensions for their maintenance than they had before. But the noblest and most royal part of their usage was that he treated these illustrious prisoners according to their virtue and character, not suffering them to hear or receive or so much as to apprehend anything that was unbecoming, so that they seemed rather lodged in some temple or some holy virgin chambers, where they enjoyed their privacy sacred and uninterrupted than in the camp of an enemy." One interesting side note is that when Alexander was young, um, his King Philip sent him to be tutored by Aristotle. And um, Aristotle, one of the things that resonated or that, 
that I took note of is the fact that he treated, if you encountered a city-state and you took them over, he's, anybody that wasn't Macedonian, per se, were slaves, or Greeks, were slaves. I mean, and, you know, weren't worthy of citizenship or being treated human. And I didn't know that about Aristotle, to be honest with you. After this, considering him to be of a temper easy to be led to his duty by reason, but by no means to be compelled, he always endeavored to persuade rather than to command or force him to anything. And now, looking upon the instruction and tuition of his youth to be of greater difficulty and importance than to be wholly trusted to the ordinary masters in music and poetry and the common school subjects, and to require, as Sophocles says, the bridle and the rudder too, he sent for Aristotle, the most learned and most celebrated philosopher of his time, and rewarded him with a munificence proportionable to and becoming the care he took to instruct his son. Um, Alexander took on a lot of what Aristotle had to say, but he he pushed that thought away, and, and the, I think that was a huge part of his success was he treated every place he went with respect after, you know, after beating them in war, battle. He took part of their culture, let them still do what they're doing, and um, incorporated some of their culture into the Greek culture and vice versa and did not, you know, had let them, let them go on with some form of autonomy. Like Alexander had this conquest idea where Plutarch talks about how his father was really into the riches and the glory of it, where Alexander was more into the uh, conquering. So his empire just kept growing and growing and it almost was feeding itself once he got through you know no i mean how they ruled those individual um countries after they took them over i think was really interesting it had to be a lot easier to manage again versus like the roman rule where they had them everyone under their thumb and there was a constant rumblings of uprising and they had to employ a lot of soldiers and resources to keep the people down and, and, and rule them and manage them and make sure they weren't over overthrown. They, they almost did it by, you know, partnership where he knows, Hey, you, you, you know, you act up, I'm coming back to beat your ass. But in the meantime, you're okay. Just can carry on. We're just going to take some of your treasury. And that was one of the things that catapulted him. Uh, and one of the things I read was that Persia had a, was really wealthy you know, um, yeah, it was always Greeks then. against, you know, Greeks against Persia. I mean, the, Alexander was about 130 years after when we talked about the Spartans. Right. And what was interesting about the Spartans, another Greek state, is Persia hired the Spartans to fight against or fight opposed to Alexander. And Alexander couldn't believe That's they true. would do that. And so he just, you know, annihilated them after the battle. They were begging for mercy. It's like, how could you do this? So it was always like this respect thing. It wasn't necessarily, um, it wasn't necessarily a, a I'm going to conquer and, and, you know, enslave people. He was more like, you know, checkbox. Yeah, no, you're right. It's more, he was looking for the experience. There were several city states, from my understanding that, you know, Thebes, Athens, that one, when they were off going to uh, battle with Persia, he heard rumblings that, you know, the city-states were acting up. And so he turned around, went back, and, like, two weeks, they, they marched 240 miles, and, and, and they went to Thebes, and they're like, hey, knock it off. And they're like, no, uh-uh, 
<laughs> you know, and he's like, don't push me. And they did. And he burned down the city and enslaved everybody. Yep. And Athens is like, Oh, we're good. Yep. We're yep. good. They, they were punks. You're right. Thebes, they were talking shit while you were gone. And so after this, he received the Athenians into favor. Although they had shown themselves so much concerned at the calamity of Thebes that out of sorrow they omitted the celebration of the mysteries and entertained those who escaped with all possible humanity. Whether it were, like the lion, that his passion was now satisfied, or that after an example of extreme cruelty he had a mind to appear merciful, it happened well for the Athenians, for he not only forgave them all past offences, but bade them look to their affairs with vigilance, remembering that if he should miscarry, they were likely to be the arbiters of Greece. Certain it is, too, that in after-time he often repented of his severity to the Thebans, and his remorse had such influence on his temper as to make him ever after less rigorous to all others. He imputed also the murder of Clytus, which he committed in his wine, and the unwillingness of the Macedonians to follow him against the Indians, by which his enterprise and glory was left imperfect, to the wrath and vengeance of Bacchus, the protector of Thebes. And it was observed that whatsoever any Theban who had the good fortune to survive this victory asked of him, he was sure to grant without the least difficulty. One of the one of the things, not to get sidetracked, but when they were battling other you know city states in in Greece itself, they mentioned a um, a group of fearsome warriors. There were a hundred and thirty uh, couples of lovers. Or partners of lovers? Did you? Well, I never read that. Did you catch that? I, well, I have to go back and restudy that because I just I, I glimpsed over it twice. I think you just have lovers on your mind. Weird. That whole thing was weird. Like it was it you know because back then you know to when they were going through that Greek you know pseudo military training at a young age it would be normal for guys you know for homosexuality that what we term today and so is that what they were referring to or they were referring oh, to a husband and a wife you know 130 couples. You know, where was this? When, when was this? Was this in, he was fighting Greece or was he leaving yeah, Greece? It was, no, it was, it was right before he left Greece. I think, I think it was in one of the videos I watched. It was, uh, <laughs> what videos are you watching? It's not leading to a good ending for me, but I'm just saying it was just curious. I can't think of it. Some fierce fighting foe. Oh, interesting. So I'll have to look yeah, that stuff up. Stuff like that, right? Yeah, no, it was interesting. Um, how he kept it together as he was going, as he, you know, accomplished what he wanted to in Greece. And then he went to Persia. And then he gets to you know to the gates of India, and yeah. the army is just exhausted. And did you hear the story when he got and they, you know, these guys would actually meet right like beforehand and you have a yuck yuck, the kings, yeah, the, the kings. Yeah. And so part of uh, Plutarch talks about the story, and um, Stephen Pressfield has a book um, that talks a lot about that meeting. So he met with the king of India, and. The king of India says, hey, we don't have to fight. Why don't I just um, give you my daughter and grandson and I'll teach you how to be a king. And Alexander was like, are you freaking kidding me? I'm the man. And he says, no, 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 no. You're like a conqueror. You're not a king. And so he said, meeting over. <laughs> and then they backed up and just you know what's got to be interesting is how how old was that Indian king at the time versus you know 
Um, Alexander. I mean, right. Alexander was what thirty, maybe not even something by then. like that. And then this king of India was probably in his seventies, and he's like, "Here comes a young hook." You know, he's going to talk and scratch, and I'm going to have to explain to him. Yeah, and he says, "Sorry, you know," he, and he just he had just beat uh, Persia. Yeah. What else did you learn? I mean, one of the things was just his his ability to rally the men. I mean, you touched on it with the people that he conquered, but his, in his own army how he treated them. And, um, you know, even at one point when they, you know, once he took over Persia, he was about power sharing and allowing even some of the Persian generals to, you know, share in power with his generals and his generals in his army is like, well, what the, what's going on here? Why, why are we, why are we battling now teammates with them on equal footing when we just came there and kicked their ass? That makes no sense. And uh, he's trying to, you know, explain to them that, you know, to, to work together with them and not um, completely humiliate them. And it got so bad where his own army kind of revolted against him. Yeah. They had that mutiny. Yeah. And they tried to, you know, do all with him and he put it down. And then after it was all done, he gave him forgiveness and said, you know, he, he instilled them back all to their, their prior ranks, what they were before. And so I think that was super interesting. I think his whole mentality of how he, um, the conquering was truly barbaric. What they did that, you know, reading some of the things they did, he just pushed it to the upper limits and didn't think about, Hey, let's just take a breather and let's go on vacation. And let's, well, that's, uh, and if you, if you put that against, let's say uh, Caesar, mm-hmm. Caesar was a tyrant, right? That's, you know, and I'm assuming he looked at Alexander as a, a role model Caesar would go around to his troops and he, if they didn't agree with them, he'd just kill them. Well, I think that's another huge thing is that not only versus Caesar, but versus the, uh, the um, Persian King uh, Darius would not be in the battle and he would always be the first one to leave. Yeah. His mom, his mom Mom and his wife and children. Oh no. No, his mom pissed off because he left. Communicated him and then adopted Alexander and, he got out of that, the one battle and left his family to, to perish in that. And so part of Alexander's allure was that he fought alongside all of his men. He was willing to go into battle with them, take the arrows just like they were. And yeah. so they ultimately trusted him and respected him for getting into the, into the grind of it, into the dirt of it with him versus, you know, what they'd experienced with the country they were conquering in particular King Darius of Persia. Um, and and um, how he treated Darius when he found him, right? Yeah, he, had, he yeah. had died, and he buried him with full honors. And well, he had, he let him live the first time, and then the second yeah. time, Darius was trying to run away again. But his own men, caught his him. own men, are like, oh, I love this. Yeah, yeah. and then uh, when when Alexander heard about that, that's where he um, treated uh, his burial. What we could say about Alexander is his historical account in, in all the text, especially Plutarch shows that he cared more about the people showing him respect than he did taking all their stuff. Another, you know, another good lesson is how, um, his just, you know, total ambition, um, led to his downfall. You know, he didn't, uh, you know, he's had so many admirable qualities, but he had that insatiable, you know, thirst for conquest. And that ended up being his undoing ultimately. 
how the Greeks and the Persians were trying to live together. And, you know, they were starting to pick sides and they didn't like the fact that Alexander was um, taking too much of the Persian culture versus the Greek culture. He right. started dressing, you know, like Persian uh, dress and things like that. And then started pissing certain people off. And then it started to be the point where it was like, was his empire like a house of cards? Right. Right. And that's where you wonder, was it inevitable regardless of if he died of malaria or poisoned or not, that you can't maintain that vast, which essentially what happened with the Roman empire. I mean, the Roman empire obviously lasted longer, but it was the same type of thing. It's the, it's, it's so fragile if you don't have that type of control over those vast amounts of land. And then they talk about communication as well. It's like, the speed on the communication between certain parts of Alexander's empire. If Alexander hears about something, it's, you know, two weeks late because some guy had to run out on a horse or whatever. And so you wonder how that, how he was able to ensure that the conquering lands were following his. And again, this guy's not 30 yet and he's able to manage everybody at, and ensure that he's not getting poisoned every time. And, um, but yeah, Plutarch definitely talks about this. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was interesting. They, they weren't obviously no one's sure whether the, all this, that, you know, what he'd conquered his kingdom, uh, so to speak at that time would have survived, even if he had lived, there were so many bubbling. And when he died, um, his mom went nuts, right? I, I don't know, know if that. you knew that. Yeah, no. like he says, um, uh, Plutarch talks about his mom, Olympias. At the time, nobody had any suspicion of him being poisoned. But upon some information given six years after, Olympias put many to death. <laughs> like, <laughs> she's she's done like, rumors. Done, she started killing done, people. Done. He died on the 13th day of the month of Dacius. Isn't that crazy? Because the months are different because Caesar hadn't been, because Caesar essentially did mm -hmm. the calendar, right? Yep. That's super interesting. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll put some edits to this. And no, that was good. Thanks. <laughs>